Romans 15, verses 5 through 7 will be our text this morning. <clears throat> it's always amazing to hear things that God is doing around the world. It's not only amazing to hear what He is doing, but to hear how He is accomplishing His work. For example, the nation of Japan is by no means a Christian nation, certainly not in the sense that a majority of the citizens claim to be followers of Christ. To the contrary, just a very, very minuscule percentage of the population claims to be followers of Jesus. But however, there's a small pocket where spiritual awakening is occurring. And it's occurring among a lot of the musicians. To be more specific, it's occurring among the classical musicians. And it's revolving around the works of a composer who lived over 300 years ago. A composer by the name of Johann Sebastian Bach. You see, Bach's works are considered genius. His fugues written for the organ and the other instruments. And they've been touching people spiritually. One young lady, a musician by the name of Yoko, said this, and I quote, Bach introduced me to God, Jesus, and Christianity. She says that when she plays a fugue, that she can hear Bach talking to God. That's amazing. But when you consider Johann Sebastian Bach's life, you begin to see why his music is having still such a profound impact on people. Because Bach was a believer. And at the end of every piece he composed, when he finished writing it, he would write down six letters, six initials, to be more specific. First, he would write J-S-B, his own initials, Johann Sebastian Bach. And then he would follow his initials with three more, S-D-G. Those initials stand for Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone, the glory. Bach knew what it meant to live his life, to work his work for the glory of God. And that's what he wanted to be seen more than anything, is God's glory. For God to be honored through the music that he composed this morning serves as the culmination of our series on the solas, or the onlys. And each of them culminate in this view of living life for God's glory. The idea of Scripture alone as our authority points to God's glory as the God who reveals Himself to us. The idea of Christ alone gives God glory because it is in Jesus alone that we see the ultimate and final manifestation of God's glory. The idea of grace alone means that we are not saved by any work. So our salvation from start to middle to finish is by God's grace alone for His glory because if it's not of our works then it has to be because of God. And faith alone, we recognize that faith is a gift 
from God. And if it is a gift, what is the proper response? It is to say, thank you God, to you be the glory for what you have done. When it came to preaching upon this idea of soli deo gloria, God alone the glory. There are so many passages that I could have asked you to open your Bibles to this morning and preached His glory. Started out thinking about Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 because in that, that one sentence that takes up 11 verses, three times in verses 6, 12, and 14, Paul says, to the praise of God's grace, to the praise of His glorious name, to the praise of God's glory. Or I could have looked at Psalm 72 where the psalmist says, the whole earth, not just a portion of it, not just one continent, not just one ocean, but the whole earth is full of God's glory. Could have looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where Paul wrote, Whatever you do, do all of it for the glory of God. This morning I wanted us to look at these three verses in Romans. Because these verses are a prayer that Paul lifts up for God to be glorified. And although these three verses do not mention specifically the Lord's Supper, these verses deal with something that is at the heart of the Lord's Supper, and that is the unity and the oneness of the church. See, as Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, they were dealing with an issue that was very practical. They were struggling to take people from two very different walks of life and how those two very different groups could be one. You had Jews who grew up learning the Torah and knowing that there was only one God that had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah who were now mixing with Gentiles who had believed that there were many gods whose ethics were extremely lacking but now they have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So how do these two groups from two very different backgrounds come together as one people? That's what Paul's dealing with. He doesn't want the church to be segregated into different parts. He says the church is to be one. Now in chapter 15, he begins dealing some very practical instructions on how Jesus is our model for how the stronger believer should interact with the weaker believer and how the body of Christ should use their different talents. And in the middle of this, Paul burst out into prayer. It's like a drive-by praying. He can't help himself. As he's talking about the things that need to happen, he knows that they can only happen because God has to work. So he prays, starting in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now verse 6 states the goal. He makes this prayer that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father. Notice at verse 7, he picks up this theme again. Welcome one another. Why do you want to welcome one another? The very end of the verse tells us why. 
for the glory of God. This shows the purpose that permeates all of Scripture. We were made to give glory to God. We were made to live our lives to honor Him. That is our purpose. That is why we are here. We need to remember that our calling is more than just the material things of life. Each and every one of us have a driving motivation in life. Any motivation that is less than living for God's honor will, in the end, leave you empty. If we live our lives for the sake of money, and we judge our value and our purpose to be to make money, we will never know true satisfaction. The time when J.D. Rockefeller was the richest man in the United States, he was asked one time, Mr. Rockefeller, you have attained a level of wealth that few can ever even dream of reaching. How much more money do you need? His response was this, one more dollar. You know what he was getting at? It's never enough. And if we live simply for the sake of money, engaging our worth based upon money and our purpose based upon money, there will come a time where either the stock market will drop and that money's gone. The question then is, what will you live for? Some of us live for popularity. We gauge our purpose in being, getting thumbs up and likes upon Facebook. But what will happen at the time wherever those thumbs are not sticking up anymore? And people that we thought were our friends have betrayed us. If we are living solely for the acceptance of others, that time will come when it is not there. I would tell you and submit to you this morning that when you live for the glory of God and you say, my work exists so that God can be honored, you have a purpose that will last. Because whether you are rich or poor, whether you live in a mansion or whether you live in a trailer, whether you are living your life in whatever circumstance you are in, you can live it for God's glory. Because living that way is not based on what you have. It's based upon who you consider the most valuable in the universe. And there we find joy. See, we find joy and meaning in saying, my life is not defined by the things of this earth but by living for God's glory. Now, I recognize that in saying that, that's a very churchy thing to say. The glory of God. Well, glory. What in the world does that mean when we talk about the glory of God? Well, I'm glad you asked that. The glory of God really involves about two meanings. One deals with God's character. The glory of God speaks of the, the weight of His character. In the Hebrew, the word for glory is the word kabod. It means weight. The glory of God speaks of the weightiness, the, the gravity, the gravitas of His character and His being. The glory speaks of the manifestation of that being upon the earth. As we move into the Christmas season, we will no doubt read Luke chapter 2 when the shepherds are in the field and they become very afraid, so afraid they are sore. They were sore afraid. That'll sit hit with you later. That was bad, I confess. You know why they were afraid? The glory of God was showing all around them. There apparently was an, a, an illuminating quality to God's manifestation. That's God's glory. But I find it very interesting that when a specific request was made to God to show me your glory, He did something very unusual. Out of all the things that He could have done, He revealed His character. 
book of Exodus, Moses is upon the mountain talking with God. Probably no man other than Jesus and Abraham spoke with God as Moses did. And he's up on the mountain now and he's speaking with God. And he makes a request, verse 18, show me your glory. Think about that for a moment. Out of all the things you could ask God, he says, show me your glory. Show me the weightiness of who you are. Now, although the scripture is not listed upon the screen, we find out in a few moments that humanity can't take the fullness of God's glory. God says, Moses, I want to show you just a small portion of my glory, the, the backside of it, because you can't handle it. In fact, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. Because if you see the totality of my glory, it will kill you. So in an act of grace, God says, I'm going to show you my glory. But here's where it gets surprising. God should, could have said, I'll show you my glory. Cover your eyes because I'm about to illuminate this mountain. He could have said, Moses, I'm going to show you my glory. You see right there, I'm going to make a rose appear out of nothing. He didn't do that. Look what he says. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Did you want to know my glory, Moses? My glory is my character. My grace. My mercy. It's who I am. The light that illuminates the darkness whenever I manifest myself is simply the light of my grace and my power and my mercy. I am sovereign, Moses, and that is the weight of who I am. So glory speaks of the character of God. But now, here's the second part of it. When we say glorify God, what we are getting at is that you and I are to live our lives so that God is honored. To glorify God means to enhance His reputation. It means that in our lives we become a spotlight that glorifies, that shines upon God's character, illuminating it to the world. That's what it means to live for God's glory. So that means the expressions of our lips, the things that we say, should reflect praise unto God. Out of all the world, the church is the one people that could be able to say, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanksgiving should always be on our lips because that magnifies the glory and the name of God. But it goes beyond that because that's something that takes place often, too often, only within these walls. But to live for God's glory means that the actions and the attitudes of our lives are to magnify God. Now, what that means very practically is this. How we conduct ourselves when we bear the name of Christ will either honor or dishonor God. Let's just, very practically, let's talk about how that pans out. I'm firmly convinced that great spiritual warfare takes place anytime a believer goes to one of the large department stores that begins with a W and ends with Mart. It tests your faith. Because I promise you that there is some sort of math mathematical equation that the more in the hurry you are to get out and get someplace else, the slower the line will be. So you're in a hurry. You get in line. Of course, the person in front of you needs a price check. 
And then you get up and you get checked out and you're waiting for your receipt and the cashier looks at you and says, I'm sorry, I'm out of paper. It'll take me a few minutes to reload that. Now at that moment, what do you do? You'll shame the devil and tell the truth. You may not say it, but you're thinking, this company makes $8 billion a year and you can't have paper in the cashier? What do you mean? I have waited here, I've gone through price checks, I've gone through not being able to find stuff, I've lost my children, but I found two others. And you're here to tell me that I can't check out now. And then sometimes, we'll let that poor person have it. But here's the question. Bearing the name of Christ, does that honor the name of God? Or would the better response be, Lord, I'm stressed right now. Grant me grace. You've given me great grace. Let me give grace. And to say, it's okay. It's okay. One of the things that I've learned to look at in life is this. When something happens like that, it's not by accident, but God's working something according to his plan. And it may be just to reveal something in our heart. Our words, our actions, and our attitudes are meant to bring glory to the name of God. Now, we're not there. None of us are. All of us are a work in progress for this to happen. But our hope is that the Holy Spirit works within us so that we can live out this prayer that Paul has prayed so that we live for His glory. So how do we take this idea of the words of our lips the actions of our lives, and the attitudes of our lives to glorify God in the Lord's Supper. Well, we know that when we come to share in communion, we are teaching, we are remembering the meaning of the cross. Jesus prayed that God would be glorified in the cross. John chapter 12, Lord, glorify your name. Let your name be magnified as his body is broken and his blood is spilt for our redemption. So when we come to share communion, we need to reflect and remember upon the meaning of the cross. We are made whole by his brokenness. Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God for our, for our sins. But we also need to reflect upon the truth that the Lord's Supper is a means of showing our unity and our oneness in Jesus. See, this is not just a testimony about what Jesus did. This communion is a testimony of the church and who the church is. Earlier I read 1 Corinthians 11. There's a verse I wanted to highlight. You'll see it up on the screens. It's verse 29. Now, prior to this, Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul had spoken about how the bread is the body of Jesus and, and the cup, the blood. But notice what he says here. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, you, typically in the past, I've interpreted the body as reference to the body of Christ. But it struck me this week. He's already mentioned the body and the blood of Jesus. What if here he is saying if we eat and drink without thinking about our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. 
That's what he picks up next. So he's saying if you don't stop and reflect upon the fact you're a part of the body, and there's a oneness and a unity, you may be missing the point. That's why he prays here for harmony. Notice he says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. Verse 6, That together you may with one voice. The idea of harmony is oneness. Many voices becoming one. And that's what he gets at here. The idea of the unity of mind. The idea of, of the unity of talents coming together. And notice in verse 5, this unity is in accord with Christ Jesus. It's a way of saying this is God's will. You wonder what the will of God is? He's saying, church, it's that you be of one mind and one accord. Now that's challenging. We have different opinions, different ideas, different backgrounds. But what it means is, is that even when there is disagreement, we do not allow that disagreement to fracture the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. So how does that happen? In other words, how can we keep the harmony that God gives us in Christ? Notice what Paul prays. The God of endurance and encouragement. This isn't the first time he's mentioned that. Look back to verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now this endurance and encouragement is given through the scripture. But the source of it is God. So it tells us that to maintain the harmony and the unity and the oneness of mind, the first thing we need is endurance. A sense of bearing with one another. To know that we are connected. Somebody once asked a mountain climber, why do you, why do you tie yourselves together when you climb a mountain? Tongue in cheek, the guy said, well, that way if one falls, we all fall. We're in it together. No, that's not the reason why. It's that if one begins to fall, the others can pull and bring them back. It's the idea of being connected for the climb that we are in. And those bonds are made strong by encouragement. Encouraging one another. Letting our words lift people up. We live in a world that now through comments and tweets and responses, it is so easy to be critical and negative and tear down. God says within the body of Christ, encourage one another. What words can you say to somebody to lift them up? See, that's powerful. I'll never forget hearing Max Lucado tell about the time he ran his first marathon. He said he was running and he came up next to this guy that was just, you know, kind of shuffling along. And Lucado said, I started running next to him. And the guy just started complaining. Man, why in the world did I decide to run a marathon? What am I doing out here? This is crazy. You're not looking so good either. Why don't we just stop up here and throw up together? This is horrible. This is horrible. Lucado said it wasn't long before I started picking up my pace to leave him behind. He said, as I kept running, though, I came up to this lady. He said she had to be maybe in her 60s, gray hair. And, man, she was going along at a good pace. And Lucado says he came up next to her. She looked over at him and said, man, you're doing great. Keep it up. We're going to do this. You're doing it. Just one step at a time. Keep going. Keep going. And Locato said, it was great running next to her. He said, I tried to stay with her, but she left me eventually. Who 
would you want to run with? Be that person that people want to run with. And if you find yourself gravitating toward the negative, lay that before God and say, Lord, change my thinking. Let my words be words that will give hope and encouragement because that glorifies God. How? What's the source of endurance and encouragement? God is. And then he says, therefore, welcome one another. This welcoming is not just looking at someone and saying, I'm glad you're here. Notice it's welcoming as Christ has welcomed you. That means throwing up your arms and bringing them in. See, the communion is about that our basis for acceptance is the grace of God. And that we give that to one another. There are three things I want to ask you to consider this morning. Three R's as we come to share communion. First is this. It is the idea of repentance. To say, Lord, forgive me. We are not perfect people. We come to the table confessing Jesus Christ is our hope and we repent of any sin, of any idea that we are good enough to earn it ourselves. To that end, the second R is this. It's to remember. Our, our world lives in the tyranny of the now. Fear of missing something, of missing out. So we focus just on the now without ever stopping to remember. So as you think about, Lord, I'm not what I ought to be, remember that Jesus makes you what you ought to be. He was broken for your sins. Spilled out so that you could be whole. Repent, remember, the final R is this, reconcile. The Lord's Supper is a time to remember we've been reconciled to God. So let's seek reconciliation with one another. Now, I know there are always situations where maybe reconciliation is not possible. Maybe the person is not open to it. Maybe there are just crimes that have been committed. But the scripture says, as as much as it's up to you, live at peace with people. What that means this morning is that as we share the Lord's Supper, and today we'll be doing it in a way where we will be standing up, and you might have the opportunity just to go to somebody and just to tell them, I love you. To tell them, you know what, I've, I've, I've had a bad attitude towards you. Will you forgive me? A time to show the unity we have in Christ. Now, as I said, I know there may be circumstances where that can't take place. But what you can do is to be sure that bitterness does not build up in your heart. And that you have a willingness that, if it possible, reconciliation can occur. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.